The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. One of the most fun things I did when I studied economics and business and agriculture at university was Accounting 101. Yeah, I'm a little bit weird like that. And one of the reasons I loved it is that it was this complete way of measuring a business activity that captured all the cheating and the sneaky things you could do to make yourself look good in the short term. For example, if I wanted to reduce my spending and, in theory, have a lot more spare cash at the end of the year, I could just choose not to invest, not do any repair and maintenance. And then next year, when the rain really came and wrecked the house because I hadn't fixed the roof, that would show up in a wrecked house. But in the accounting system that we all still use, general accounting principles, where you have a cash flow statement, a profit and loss statement, and a set of assets and liabilities, you can actually stop all the cheap and easy ways of making yourself look good because you're actually measuring the changes in the values of your assets and liabilities. Let's say, for example, I choose not to spend money on maintenance on the roof. Well, then I also have to assess a lower asset value for the roof and the house because I didn't repair it. And therefore, actually, once I look at my profit and loss statements, that includes the write-down and the value of my assets, and actually I haven't done better off. So I'm actually better off to spend the money investing in the repair and maintenance. And it's a bit like that for a society because Treasury the main keeper of our books for the government and actually for the economy overall, and the main provider of advice for politicians and voters about how to spend our money, has for 30 years used these common accounting principles to work out whether or not it's a good idea to spend some money. How high should our debts be? Should we invest in infrastructure? Should we invest in social services? All of these decisions will at some point be subject to a cost-benefit analysis where you have to work out what are the good things that come from this decision, what are the bad things, are we measuring it, and should we measure that good thing about that against that bad thing. Now, in business, we just measure things with plain old dollars. That's the apples that we compare with our apples. And for a long time, that's how it's worked in government too. And the cleanest, clearest way of comparing the apples with the apples and making these decisions, these trade-offs about where to spend our money or, or not to tax our money, is around GDP, which is, a, again, a clear dollars for dollars, apples for apples measure of our output in any one year. The Treasury also produces some balance sheet statements, assets and liabilities, which in theory takes into account all those cheap fixes and cheats that you use to try and save money in the short term. And all of these things come together in our government accounts, our balance sheets, and affect our profit and loss statements. 
And for the last 30 years, Treasury has been focused on that, and in particular on keeping our net debt down. Now, over time, both flavours of government have used that approach to focus on keeping net debt down, and that's often meant not investing in social services, infrastructure, housing, public services that produce a benefit, but one that's really hard to measure in the short term in dollar terms. But that is real, and that makes a difference, and often comes out in the wash anyway when, let's say, a person who's got a mental health problem or someone who's locked up in prison, social dysfunction, these sorts of issues that end up costing us all in the long run. So Treasury, over the last decade or so, has been trying to understand all of those non-financial effects of decisions. Let's say we build a motorway. Is that going to make it faster for us to get to work? Therefore, that's a benefit. Is it going to make it easier for us to get to a national park? That's a benefit. And then some costs of building it and the interest costs of borrowing the money to build it. But are we measuring things like, in the process, we just paved over a wetland or we polluted the water downstream? Or maybe we've just made the lives of those people living next to the new motorway intolerable because of the the noise and the particulates. How are we measuring all these non-dollar benefits and costs, the well-being impacts? Treasury's built a living standards framework over the last decade, and just in the last couple of weeks, it's come out with its first full well-being report, which under new legislation it's forced to do on top of those balance sheet profit and loss and cash flow accounts that they've been doing for the last 30 years or so. And it's starting to give us an idea of how we might make different decisions around, for example, let's say, that motorway. Should we take into account the likely carbon credits that we'll need to come up with in 2039 to pay for the excess above our promises to the Paris Accord, for example? In that motorway decision, have we taken those costs into account? Have we taken the costs of maybe having to repair the water supply downstream from the motorway? All of these non-financial soft costs, if you like, are we including those in our cost-benefit analysis? And in our focus on keeping net financial debt low, are we in effect storing up huge liabilities in the future in a way that even a credit rating agency can see and decide, yeah, your net debt looks remarkably low at the moment, but in 30 years' time, because you didn't invest in reducing your emissions projections, you're actually going to have to pay for that long run. So therefore, I'm not going to give you the benefit of an improved credit rating simply because your net debt numbers are lower. And we're starting to see the financial world take these soft measures into account, particularly through the ESG environment, social and governance measures of not just governments, but companies as well. This week on When the Facts Change, we look more closely at the Treasury's new wellbeing report and its living standards framework and how it might change the way our governments, our politicians, our voters think about investing and think about the decisions we make in the long run. This week on When the Facts Change, I speak to Tim Ng, who is a special advisor and one of the producers of the new Wellbeing Report. I'm Bernard Hickey, this week on When the Facts Change. 
Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change to Tim Ng, who is the Treasury's Strategic Economic Advisor and uh, very heavily involved in the Treasury's latest Wellbeing in Aotearoa New Zealand 2022 report. This is the first Wellbeing report, uh, big report that the Treasury's done. It's a big deal and in a way is a, um, a milestone for New Zealand's uh, uh, well-being approach. So thank you very much for being on the show, Tim. Great great to have you on When the Facts Change. Yeah, kia ora, Bernard. Uh, great to be here. Now, for an audience who may have only vaguely heard of this well-being approach or maybe even something called the Living Standards Framework, could you explain uh, how it came about and also what it means from a Treasury point of view that's different? Sure. Uh, That's a very good question. It does date back, the Living Standards Framework does date back quite some time, back to about 2010, 2011, uh, when there was a pretty influential report um, came out of, it was commissioned actually by President Sarkozy of France uh, way back in 2010, I think 2009, 2010, uh, which was essentially about the idea of beyond GDP which some of your listeners um, may be aware of as a, as a kind of movement or a, or a um, strand of thought. And that said that, that strand of thought said that, uh, well, the world is getting more complicated. Uh, we, in developed countries at least, have a range of concerns about uh, inequality, degradation of the environment, and so on. And so our conventional measures of economic activity, being GDP, uh, are not sufficient to capture all of those other things that we are also concerned about. Now, to be sure, GDP and jobs and income are very important, always have been and always will be. So beyond GDP is exactly that, not saying get rid of GDP. It's saying, well, let's keep GDP for all the value that it has and telling us about how the economy is going, but supplement it also with uh, attention to and measurement of these other things that, citizens of the world routinely say are important in their lives. Could you give us some examples of um, things that um, are are important in that well-being measurement and that maybe are in a way uh, either not measured in GDP or in fact are measured in GDP and it's seen GDP as a good thing, (laughs) but it may not be a good thing from a well-being point of view. Good, good, good. Very good question. If you, many people around the world, including in New Zealand, and we have asked people in New Zealand, uh, we and others, routinely say that health is really important to them. Okay, physical health, mental health. Uh, and as I'm sure we'll probably talk about, that features in the wellbeing report, um, uh, this wellbeing report we've just released. Now, health is something that is a, is a sort of state. Uh, you know, you are healthy or you're not. Uh, and then if you're not healthy, you may go and spend uh, on improving your health. You may go to the doctor, uh, in which case the doctor earns income. Uh, that is recorded in the GDP accounts as national income. Um, it's recorded on the expenditure side as cons- household consumption expenditure. And so both of those items in GDP have gone up because you've become sick, right? So it would be a mistake to say that it's clearly not the case that everything that is recorded as economic activity reflects all the things that we want to go well in our lives. Uh, Another example would be uh, somebody spills oil in in the Hauraki Gulf or something like that. So there's a big cleanup operation. You need to uh, contract 
all the things that you need to do to clean up an oil spill. And that is economic activity. That creates income for people. And so it's measured as GDP. But that doesn't mean that we've become better off. Uh, It means actually that we're dealing with a problem that we've got. It sort of harks back to this idea of... um they call it the broken window thing. We, we go around breaking people's windows and then repairing them to improve right. GDP. Right. Or you, you take an earthquake. You know, GDP went up massively after the Canterbury earthquakes because you had a whole lot of stuff got destroyed, which is not measured in GDP, and it had to be rebuilt, which is being measured in GDP. So uh, as, I, as I said, GDP tells you a lot of interesting things for the management of the economy. There's no doubt we, we need it. Uh, it was... Uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons. It tells you how big your tax base is. It tells you, you know, it's very closely related to employment, obviously, very closely related to household incomes. All of those things are very important. So we know we're not going to stop measuring GDP and interpreting it. Uh, but what we're trying to do with uh, the living standards framework and the, the well-being approaches as a kind of evolution of that, um, or an application of it, I should say, is... Uh, get better at thinking of these other things that are, that are important to people, that I think there's a broad consensus is important to people, and bringing those into our economic analysis and fiscal analysis as well. And the interesting thing I think about the wellbeing approach is that it it meshes quite nicely with the idea of measuring performance, output, states of being uh, in a way that is more than just a flow measure uh, through a year. So I'm for many, uh, I did accounting 101 and uh, I spent a couple of decades of my life looking at the uh, annual reports, the profit and loss statements and the assets and liability statements of companies and can see how a GDP number can tell you something about what happened during the year in total, but sometimes it misses how uh, your assets and li- your liabilities have changed. And you can see them reasonably clearly in a, a company statement. And for the last you know, 20 or 30 years or so, uh, Treasury has put a lot of effort into reporting not just the, I wouldn't call it profit and loss, but you know, cash in and out type statements, although we also have a type of profit and loss statement. And then there's a measure of assets and liabilities. Could you talk about how the well-being analysis meshes in with that idea of what you would call an actuarial sets of measures of um, an economy, a, a government, um, which starts to think about how you could spend some money in one year and measure that or make a decision not to spend money. And that has impacts, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years out, which you have to try and measure if you're going to make a sensible decision. Yep. No, absolutely. So I think you start with a good example, which is how would you think about things from an accounting point of view? And you have, in accounting, you have a profit and loss statement, you know, money in, money out, and you also have a balance sheet. Okay, what is the accumulation of money in and money out, right? If you... Every year you have more money coming in than going out, then your balance sheet is going to grow. You're probably going to be pretty happy, right? Your equity is going up. So in the living standards framework, we would say that the equivalent of equity would be what we're thinking of as wealth in New Zealand, okay? So the wealth of New Zealand, uh, which includes um, our physical assets, infrastructure and plant and machinery, but it also includes things like our education, um, our health status, uh, the quality of our natural environment, 
and our social cohesion. Those are the things that uh, produce these these flows, if you like, of um, well-being uh, in different forms in and out uh, year after year. And so those are the that's the concept which we're trying to capture and have been trying to develop over the years, uh, which which is the equivalent to what you're saying. So. So to, to give you an example, which, which may think, make things concrete, uh, let's say we earn income as a nation one year, uh, and we've done that by digging minerals out of the ground. Okay, So that income would just be measured as income. Uh, we would not count in a flow view, a traditional GDP view, we would not count the, de- the depletion of those mineral assets. Uh, if we chop down some trees, same thing. We measure the value of the timber, uh, but we don't measure uh, in the GDP accounts um, the, this, the uh, diminution in the size of the forest. Now, we are actually changing that. The system of national accounts uh, globally is adapting to count things like forests as a stock, not just flows of timber, to count things like stocks of water. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to measure biodiversity. We're trying to measure these things that if you like, are the enduring, well, stocks of wealth, if you like, that generate uh, well-being into the future. So absolutely, um, it's a kind of work in progress. You know, it's not as well-developed as GDP, but it's one of those things that are adjacent to GDP, if you like, uh, that enable us to go beyond just looking at the narrow flows of income in GDP. And Treasury, for the last uh, 30 years or so, has been the... Uh the keeper of the books, if you like, um, not so much the collector of the money, that's the IRD, but the keeper of the books. And in particular, with the State Sector Act and the uh, um, Public Finance Act, that really changed the way that Treasury had to account for things and try to understand what they were doing, what the politicians were asking them to do, uh, so that everyone could see clearly what was going on. But in the last few years, there's been some changes in legislation which force, I suppose you could call it, uh, Treasury and um, governments of whatever flavour to report back on things like wellbeing. So could you tell us about, you know, how that's changed the reporting requirements and, and what we could see, you know, if you were out there Googling, so what is this wellbeing thing? Where's the best, you know, report? Um, tell us about that. Sure. I think you could see the wellbeing reporting requirement uh, that was introduced in 2020 with an amendment to the Public Finance Act. And that's why we're producing, one of the reasons why we're producing the wellbeing report uh, is because we have to. Uh, par- Parliament legislated to require the Treasury to do that. But you could see it as a continuation of, as you say, and a development in New Zealand's history over the, at least since the, or since the 90s, really, where We've seen it, we as a country have seen it as important to measure what the government is doing much more transparently and in a way that you can compare it across time and compare with, with other countries. Uh, and we've been a leader in that uh, around the world, actually, is, is this idea of being very clear using standard accounting principles, uh, being very clear about what the, what the government is doing. Um, in the... In the 90s, what was introduced first was a standardised way, a generally accepted accounting practice is what it was called, a standardised way, using the standardised way of measuring financial flows uh, and financial stocks of 
the government. So the idea of government debt, how do you measure that? How do you report that? Um, the budget deficit or the budget surplus, uh, how do you measure that? Uh, with all the different expenditure categories, etc. That is what New Zealand became known for in terms of fiscal transparency during that period. And so you could see this increase in the obligations on Treasury to report more widely uh, than just the finances of the government as part of that as part of that process. Uh, I would say, I mean, we welcome it. You know, I mean, it is more work for us, of course. We have to produce this report, but it, we would support uh, very much the idea of reporting more comprehensively the things that matter to citizens and to ministers uh, when they're making decisions. And, and to, for that matter, to you know, foreign investors, if they're looking at New Zealand as a place to invest, you want to know what's going on in New Zealand. This will hopefully provide a more uh, holistic picture of what's going on. And from a purely financial point of view, at some point, um, if we haven't already, we'll be issuing um, green bonds, um, ESG bonds, those sorts of things, and these sorts of measures help um, fund managers and investors uh, think more clearly about it. Now, the, the first report uh, has come out uh, in at the end of November, Te Tai Wai Ora, Wellbeing in Aotearoa, New Zealand 2022. And um, the summary of it uh, is included in a, in a great speech from Carolyn McLeish, the Treasury Secretary, um, and she summarises uh, uh, some of the findings of the report, particularly around the things that you could uh, describe as key measures of well-being around material hardship, which shows that um, there have been a, a falling percentage of people who are deemed to be in material hardship or to have certain uh, things missing in their lives. Um, However, there are some other measures where we seem to have not improved or in some cases uh, uh, deteriorated. The obvious one is in the measure of housing costs as a share of income for those people who are in the lowest quintile for income. We have the uh, uh, essentially the worst, most expensive housing costs in the OECD. And then also an increase in psychological distress as surveyed, particularly for those amongst the the, the young. Um, what other sorts of measures have uh, have you looked at in the overall report, which you could argue are focused on sort of well-being more, more so than the traditional GDP? I think the apart from the ones that you've mentioned, uh, education stands out. Educational achievement. Uh, and the whole area of skills um, and, and the you know life course implications of educational achievement. That's been quite a focus area for us, partly because uh, the, some of the numbers, some of the indicators are not going in the right direction on that. Um, we had we already had a, a sort of droopy attendance rates before COVID, and then the disruptions of COVID just seems to have. You know, just, Made, made things worse. Now, the reason why that's important for well-being is, if you like, there's a, there's a kind of narrow reason, which is that uh, if you, and this is related to psychological distress, if you are not achieving, if you don't achieve well at school, there's um, strong evidence that, of course, that you will have lower income, uh, you know, throughout your life course, you'll have a lower income path. Um, the evidence is very clear on that. But also education, there's plenty of evidence that says that education is important not just for labour market uh, 
contributions, but just for general ability to get on well in life and to flourish. You know, the idea of human flourishing, going back to Aristotle, um, you know, education and skills and participation in society using your skills uh, is just such a such a critical part of uh, well-being that that's why we zoomed in on that uh, as well as the fact, the fact that some of the indicators are looking a little worrying. Yeah. And it seems to um, mesh in with some of the initial findings of the last sort of 10 or 20 years from a, a purely economic uh, point of view, looking at productivity. Um, there's this saying amongst us economists, uh, I think I might have had a dream about it once or twice, um, there's only one thing that matters uh, in the long run, which is productivity. And if your uh, education has been affected badly by you know, COVID or maybe it's a change in policies or some wider factors around you or your family or your whanau, which means that you're not uh, able to learn as well or, you know, you're bouncing from school to school or whatever it is, that in the long run collectively could drag down on productivity if you want to look at it in a really nakedly financial GDP. Well, that's the concern from a, if you like, from a narrow GDP point of view. You know, you say, well, you're going to have a less productive workforce, so lower GDP, lower incomes. But it, it comes through right through to households, whānau, communities and individuals, you know, uh, and that's why it's such a, that's why it's such a concern. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's a whole lot of detail in the report, really, that talks about the different dimensions of this achievement um, issue. Uh, we see uh, declining rates of achievement in the sort of core um, areas of literacy, numeracy, and science knowledge. Uh, overall rates of NCEA achievement, by NCEA achievement, by the way, are increasing. I think so. That's positive story. So it's not all bad by any means, but what we're trying to highlight with this report is that, look, there, there are some things that don't seem to be going in the right direction, so it's worth a, a closer look because of the a shadow, the shadow that it could cast on, on the future. And what are the other areas that sort of surprised you in uh, pulling together the various numbers? Because um, on the face of it, um, Aotearoa has a pretty high uh, measure of you know happiness, which is not the only thing, and it is a collection of lots of different things, but we tend to score quite high on that. But w- what else are you seeing that maybe surprised you a bit in pulling these numbers together? Well, there's, there's, there's so many numbers in the report uh, and so many things that we looked at. That The housing one you've already mentioned, that was more as a shock as much of as much as a surprise in that, you know, worse than the OECD for the amount of rent, uh, the proportion of rent to income of 50% or something like that for the, that lowest quintile, as you mentioned, which is an extraordinarily high number. Uh, and like with education, we know that that has all sorts of other impacts across uh, people's experience and ability to, to get on in life. Mental health, you mentioned, uh, psychological distress, uh, the other one that I think is quite interesting is when we looked at natural, the natural environment, and this is now starting to talk about the wealth analysis that's uh, in Chapter 5, I think, of the report, where we looked at uh, how well are we uh, looking after our different aspects of wealth, human capability, social cohesion, natural environment, uh, and our physical infrastructure, if you like. And... Uh, 
the analysis that we looked at or the, the evidence we drew on suggested that natural the natural environment could potentially be very important for New Zealand's welfare, uh, well-being, if you like. Uh, but we've been running it down. You know, that's been the history of development uh, in New Zealand and in many other countries. You, you know, transform the natural environment and, and uh, if you like, exploit it in various ways. You turn it into farmland. Um, you sort of build dams and things like that. And that's been, um, that has been part of a process of building up human capability, you know, and building up physical infrastructure and building up institutions, which have got us to where we are today. The question is, you know, can that continue? And the numbers that we looked at suggest that, you know, there are some risks uh, at the very least to that strategy of continuing to put pressure on the environment. Now, I don't think this is going to be news to many people. You know, there are lots of areas of concern, freshwater quality, uh, erosion of soil, um, you know, degradation of soil quality in general, and, of course, climate change. Uh, but what's been, I guess, quite revealing, bringing it together in the report, is, is putting it beside those other wealths and saying, OK, uh, what's the sustainability of our well-being going forward, given that, you know, we see this pressure on the natural environment, uh, given that we're a little bit worried about human capability going forward, or that we see some risks, etc. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, then it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns.
One of the um, things that I really enjoyed at university when I was studying economics and um, agriculture and a whole bunch of things was the the beautiful simplicity of accounting and how uh, a decision in one part of a business with a cost and potentially a revenue and um, some impact on your assets and your liabilities all sort of worked out perfectly in the end. There's something beautiful about it. And one of the attractions of the uh, um, the gap, you know, general accounting principle way of looking at government is that it's it gives you this framework for making decisions that effectively uh, allow you to make trade-offs, which is the whole game of economics. You can say, well, if I spend this extra money here on this motorway, I'll get some benefits on the other side in the long run, and that maybe it saves everyone 20 minutes of uh, travel time times 200,000 times 20 years times whatever it is, and this means that more people will be able to work, maybe they'll pay more taxes, maybe they'll uh, get more um, time off work for fun, and we can sort of measure that in our cost-benefit analysis. When uh, a minister or a parliament says, right, we've got this issue and we want to spend this much money, are we going to get good value for money? And the ability to, in a fungible way, i.e. to be able to compare one action and reaction in a way that allows you to do the trade-offs in a clear way with a common set of measures is quite a Appealing. <laughs> uh, and then when you do the well-being stuff, it's a little bit harder because you can't put a dollar value on everything. You know, we've all heard of the the health economics game of, uh, you know, putting a, a dollar value on, you know, numbers of um, productive years of life left. But, you know, putting a value on, for example, um, levels of mental distress or putting a value on clean water, you know, um, as economists, we love to think, well, there's a market for that. You know, we can, we can, we can work out what the market price is and then we can, you know, put a, put a, um, a discount rate through it, <laughs> come up with a final value and go, oh, we're on. But um, how do you get around this issue of like with like? If you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, say, for example, it's a motorway, um, brilliant, you get all these returns from – uh, fuel taxes and uh, save time on work and maybe some extra tax revenue because you can have more people working in that particular area. And the cost-benefit analysis says for every dollar you spend, you're going to get $7 back. It's brilliant way to go. But you're not actually measuring the fact that in building the motorway, you might have wrecked a waterway or you might have paved over a um, a wetland, or maybe there's 10,000 people living by the motorway who are now driven mad every day by the sounds of the trucks going past. I don't know. So how, how do you sort of enmesh all that together so that you've got a, a fungible, you know, a, an apples with apples um, tool for your cost-benefit analysis? Yeah, yeah. look, a very good question, Bernard, and um, that is exactly what all of this stuff ultimately, from the point of view of the Treasury, since we advise ministers on those questions of relative value for money, you know, is option A more valuable than option B on net? Uh, That is the $64 million question, if I can invoke a dollar uh, value on your question. Um, So we are getting better, I think, at doing that, but there's still a long way to go is how I would put it. Uh, Let's take your motorway example. 
there are actually ways that you can you can infer what dollar value people put on things like motorways. Uh, most of the studies seem to be about things like access to various things that are of value. Let's say it's access to, let's say the motorway goes to a, a national park. Uh, if you didn't have the motorway, which you may, may be contemplating building that motorway, uh, at the moment you measure your house values without the motorway and then you compare to another project that has built a motorway that has access to this national park and you observe the difference in the house values. Okay, that's one way you can do it. Now, there's all, obviously all sorts of assumptions uh, about whether or not the two motorways, the, 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 the sort of promised motorway and the actual motorway, are they the same or not? But that is what uh, economists often will try to do uh, is one way, it's called revealed preference, uh, of putting a dollar value on something like a motorway with all the benefits that that increased access provides. You know, you measured it in terms of minutes. Well, how would you value the minutes? It depends on what you're using the minutes to go and get to in that example. Um, another way is actually just straight to ask people. You know, you can unitize, uh, you know, these minutes and you can go and, go and survey people. You say, well, look, uh, how much would you pay to have 10 minutes taken off your commute time? It's, oh, that's worth $5,000 to me per annum. Okay. Uh, that's called um, uh, it's a surveyed preference. I've just forgotten the, exactly the, the technical term for it, but it's, um, it's not revealed preference, but it's the other one. Uh, so there are ways you can do it, and yes, uh, they are of varying degrees of rigour um, from the highly flaky through to the more objective, uh, and that is what this um, you know, progress is about in this area of policy analysis is trying to get better measures of all of those things that are associated with why or why, why not you might want to build the motorway um, so that you can do that kind of cost-benefit analysis. You can also do it for the bads associated, not just the goods, but the bads associated with uh, motorways. You ask people about noise, you ask people about congestion, you know, you can put values on those things as well using those kinds of techniques. Are we talking here about stated preference and reveal preference? Stated preference, that is the one. Stated F- preference, thank fantastic. you. Fantastic. Yes. I, I knew that that economics study 23 years ago would be coming this <laughs> and it finally has. Uh, and and just, uh, just finally, one of the most interesting things about this change in the way that Treasury over the last 30 years has used its frameworks for decision-making and, and accounting to clarify and focus the public sector on achieving one thing has been, um, as you mentioned before, the whole area of of coming up with a balance sheet approach and net debts, for example, um, very easy to measure now. And we have obviously good measures of our of the government's assets. And when all of this was dreamt up in the late 80s, early 90s, one of the main concerns that the government had was a very high net debt, government debt to GDP ratio, which at the time was a existential threat in that we'd only just uh, moved to a floating currency. And one of the reasons for it is that we'd had too much debt and uh, foreign investors lost confidence in us and the, the sheer fact of having a fixed currency and borrowing in foreign currencies meant that uh, that lack of confidence very quickly <laughs> turned into a run on our currency and a real uh, problem for us. So 
over time, we worked out what our net debt was and sort of focused the public sector on saying, okay, we think this is a a prudent level of net debt. And over time, that's evolved to the point where the current view is that uh, around about net debt of around about 30% of GDP is, is the right one. And you could argue that just about every decision that a government makes in terms of revenue and spending over the long run can be expressed within that clarifying net debt to GDP ratio. And one of the arguments or complaints about focusing on that is that in your in the government's and multiple flavours of governments uh, focus on getting net debt down, is that uh, you can um, choose to do that by not investing in infrastructure or uh, not investing in things that don't improve the net debt. Uh, um, I, I wonder if one of the um, results of that understandable focus on reducing net debt and making it to, taking it to a prudent level is that over time we have not invested enough in infrastructure for housing or for health or whatever it is, and that now we can start to see the results of that in those non-GDP measures, like, for example, might be mental health or it might be education. It certainly isn't housing. <laughs> um, so I, I wonder, how do you think this new wellbeing approach, the Living Standards Framework, might change the way that uh, the overall machinery of government, which, you know, Treasury is there to manage the finances and keep a leash on things and make sure that, you know, um, uh, uh, individuals can't run away, <laughs> can't run away with the money or put an entire nation in debt after um, doing a bunch of things. Those institutional safeguards are there. I wonder how the living standards framework might change the way that clarifying limit or formula um, is developed over time. Because on the face of it, uh, having a, re- a low level of investment is great for net debt, but may not, but may express itself in the long run in a reduction in those soft measures of your collective um, social capital. Uh, physical capital, um, natural capital, human capital? Yeah, look, um, really interesting question. Um, How long have we got? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, first, a couple of remarks, I guess, on the, you know, you characterise it rightly, I think, as a a sort of single-minded focus on getting debt down uh, when we first started measuring it. It's similar to single-minded focus on getting inflation down at about the same time, right? So over perhaps a decade, uh, we in the public sector in New Zealand, and this is a personal view, but I don't think it's totally inaccurate, I think we changed our mindset about what uh, stability, what, how the government in its broadest form, including the central bank, including the reserve bank, how the government contributes to stability uh, through its spending and including use of money and setting of interest rates and so on, talking about monetary policy there. So that 10 years, I think, was an exercise in establishing credibility to the rest of the world and to ourselves. Okay, whatever government, uh, whatever flavour of government, you call it, comes in, 
we have a got our eye on the ball. We're measuring things properly. We know what it means. We're going to get it down to uh, what we might say is prudent levels of both public debt and inflation. Okay, that is our number one task in that 10 years when we have the moment of uh, horror, you know, if things keep going in this wrong direction, inflation going up, public debt going up, it's not going to end well for us, okay? So first job, stabilise it, get it down, right? Demonstrate that we have, we as a country, have the capacity to do that, okay? So having done that, things have evolved since then. And you see uh, a good example of how evidence, I would cite, in favour of the proposition that we've established credibility there is that we kept our high AA credit rating through the pandemic, through the GFC. We haven't been below AA for uh, something like 20 years or something, uh, a long time, you know, despite public debt to GDP, net debt to GDP moving up and down a bit over that time, inflation moving up and down a bit. People haven't lost people, by which I mean foreign investors and other investors in New Zealand, have not lost confidence that we know what we're doing here. So I'm pretty confident, therefore, that we can continue to broaden the way we look at how we use the instruments of government, including spending and investment, you mentioned infrastructure and education, health, things like that, how we can... uh, use those instruments to promote all of those aspects of well-being, even if they cause debt uh, to move around a bit, uh, you know, because we have that credibility. I assure you and all your listeners that Treasury will not drop the ball or or take its eye off that that debt number because it is still very important. Uh, But we have done a lot of hard work over, we, I mean, in general, in New Zealand, successive governments, have done a lot of hard work in establishing that credibility over 20 years that we know what we're doing financially in New Zealand. And that has put us in a position where we can do things like spend you know, 15 20% of GDP uh, in terms of debt support when we have a thing like COVID come along uh, and we end up with good results relative to the rest of the world. Very few deaths. Uh, the economy comes back on steam pretty quickly, you know, uh, and it looks like well-being through the COVID episode held up pretty well. Uh, it's early days yet, have to say, you know, uh, there are still, still got to keep an eye on things like, um, you know, those attendance rates, for example. Uh, we want to see those, we want to address that. Uh, and to the extent that there's any COVID impact there, um, we want to understand that better and we haven't seen enough data yet. But on the whole, I think most people, most observers have been pretty pleasantly surprised at how well we've come through this episode. And um, as New Zealand was a pioneer in things like independent inflation targeting central banking and the use of um, general accounting principles for managing government finances, uh, it seems that the rest of the world is, you know, looking over the fence and going, "Mm, what are they doing with this living standards framework thing? I've got a whole bunch of pension funds breathing down my neck talking about ESG. Uh, maybe we could pick up some of these um, these Kiwi ideas uh, in our thinking about, um, you know, how we talk about economic development, about uh, balance sheets, net debt, um, you know, whether uh, debt is sustainable in the long run when you start issuing 20, 30, 100-year bonds, you know, uh, these things become important. Just finally, you know, how, how much interest is there in the rest of the world in what we're doing here, and 
you know, is there an, a chance at some point that, you know, a Standard & Poor's or a Moody's will start to, you know, use some of these things when they make their assessments about, you know, AA credit ratings? You could argue that, you know, a, a country that might have a higher level of uh, financial debt but in the process has significantly reduced its emissions uh, trajectory actually financially in the long run is better off and therefore deserves a better credit rating or at least to keep the one they've got. So what's what's your feeling there? Yeah, look, um, so the first part of your question, yes, we have had interests from other countries around the world that are kind of like-minded in um, wanting to understand how to move uh, government operations beyond a narrow focus on GDP. Um, Scotland, for example, Wales, uh, Iceland, uh, Finland, Canada, uh, these are all jurisdictions or countries that have um, developed wellbeing frameworks. They may not call them that, but the similar kind of principles. Uh, and yes, I think from the point of view of credit rating agencies, they've always been about um, more than just headline indicators. You know, the headline might be debt to GDP, but if you read the text and the narrative carefully, it is definitely about, well, is this a serious country or not? You know, do they know what they're doing? And you would you would think that if they see a country not addressing its human capability issues, not addressing, uh, not looking after its environment, um, these are the, coming back to the idea of wealth, these are the sources of creditworthiness into the future. If you're going to issue a 100-year bond, which some countries do, uh, you know, I'm going to want to know, is this country going to be still around in 100 years and still with an educated, productive population, for example? Is it still going to be socially cohesive or are they going to be at each other's throats? Uh, you know, those types of questions absolutely, I, I know, because I've talked to them, uh, are on the minds of credit rating agencies when they assess, you know, is this a serious country and what, what rating shall we give it uh, for whether or not it's going to pay back our pay back investors' money uh, when it falls due. Yes, as we've learned, um, geopolitics um, can depend on these things like social cohesion and um, these institutional frameworks can, you know, have real-world impacts down down the line. Uh, Tim Ng, uh, who is a strategic economic advisor at Treasury, thank you so much for being on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.